Hello, welcome to this edition of Toby Haddock's Who's Round, which is the second part of my chat with Doctor Who director Michael Ferguson. Well, and uh, behind the camera, uh, uh, I think on all of your, certainly, Seeds of Death, Ambassadors of Death and Claws of Axis, your film cameraman is the legend that was uh, A.A. <clears throat> Englander. Yeah. Um, and you've got those marvellous silhouetted shots mm. of the monster looming through yeah. the sun. So, and he was a bit of a BBC legend to have oh, yes. shooting. So tell, well, tell me about, uh, about Tubby. Tubby Englander, yes. I, I really liked him. He was could be a little bit crotchety, um, but he was certainly an, an elder statesman of the BBC camera department, and very often I worked with him quite a lot on other things, including Paul Temple and pro, other, some other programmes, and very often he had an, an assistant with him who was actually learning, but, so he had two assistants, whatever. And he was very good at helping younger ones and giving them opportunities and so on, and, uh, and supervising the whole thing. I liked him enormously, and we got on very well. I was the only thing I can remember about about him was that he didn't like heights very much. And, <laughs> and I think it was in Munich we were doing a Paul Temple, and uh, I wanted a high shot, and Toby said, "Well, he can do it. He can do it." <laughs> <laughs> That's why he had the assistant. <laughs> yes, maybe. Um, I like the seeds of death very much. I think it's. Uh... It sustains its six episodes very nice because you keep it. But you've got uh, Terry Scully is fantastic. Mm. What a lovely edgy quality he mm. has. Mm. He's a, a splendid actor. I worked with him previously by that time, <coughs> I think, on something called Triton, which was involved um, by Rex Tucker. Uh, it was really a children's adventure thing in probably six episodes, and Terry played Lord Nelson and did it wonderfully well. It was absolutely the right casting because um, Nelson wasn't particularly tall and actually Terry looked very like him. I did quite a, something else with Terry, I can't remember at the moment. I'd have to do some research, but a, another lovely actor, you know, somebody who turned up with ideas and, and added to the totality of what you're trying to create, not trying to create something else on the side, which some actors like to try to do. Well, an actor that's in that, that you, uh, that's also in The War Machines and Unites your work, but I think there's a familial connection, is, who I think is a, a, a very naturalistic and good actor, is Rick Felgate, <laughs> who was, was he your brother-in-law yes, or something? Yes, yes. Rick was a, uh, he was a smashing guy. He was married to my first wife's sister. And uh, so I knew him socially, we, we spent a the four of us spent a lot of time together, so I knew Rick. Um, and in the days when nobody said, oh, you're always casting somebody or other, because that was the way it was. You, you, <clears throat> without the support of a casting director, you couldn't know the, the width of the field and who was in the field that you could choose from. You only knew people that you'd worked with on the whole, or somebody that you'd seen uh, perhaps in another programme recently, and you might get on to the director of that programme, so you've just worked with Joe Bloggs, how did you get on? Um, and say, so, oh, I wouldn't ever work with him again. Or I might say, absolutely, wonderful, wonderful. I could recommend him to anybody. So that's the way that, that kind of worked in those days. But 
working with the same people as I did a lot uh, was, was common. That was, that was what nearly all of us did because you were buying something, something that you already knew about rather than an unknown. But the BBC now does have casting departments, I believe. Anyway, it's a long time since I've been. Well, it's more it's freelance casting directors, who, you know, who, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that are the big hurdle for most yeah. actors to, to yeah. get past. Yeah. I noticed the change very much when I went to YTV, or ITV, and subsequently YTV, having worked for Thames and London Weekend, and they had already had casting directors, and that was a great help. Yeah, I, I was think, I was thinking, what your stuff's brilliantly cast when you get Harry Taubin for one week just to kill him in, <laughs> in the seeds of death. Uh, he was a lovely man. And um, Alan Benny and you know became the only actor they ever cast as the Ice Lord. He came, you know, he came that that that. That Alan, Alan had been in the same children's theatre company as I had. We toured around together, so already knew him. Ah. And I actually, my first directing experience was with that children's theatre company, usually in uh, pieces uh, that I'd already played in as an actor. And Alan, I remember working with him and directing him. I think he played Fagin, I might be wrong about that, but there's another you know, 30 minute version of Oliver, Twi Oliver Twist. And Steve Peters, you used a lot. He was a poor man in case. I don't know much about Steve. He seems he sort mm. of vanished. I don't know what became of him. But uh, I think I worked with him again. Well, you cast him as an ambassador of, of the, you, and he's in the Yellow Pill. That's right. Um, oh, where you actually see his face if if it if it existed. You, you still. are good. <laughs> you know it's far mis, more about me than I. It's a misspent life. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, we don't, don't quite know what became of Steve. He sort of Steve was the guy in the Ice Warrior kit. Oh. That you know this. I must have told you this story, but I'll tell it again now. Um, we were on Hampstead Heath and, and covering half of a, about a square hundred yards of it with foam up to waist level for terrible people to emerge from or get fall into. I can't remember which now, but uh, involved the ice warriors. And Steve was on was in the shoot, but not being used, so he was uh, taking time out leaning against a tree uh, with his head mask off and smoking a cigarette in a holder, which so alarmed and surprised a lady who was driving along the adjacent road that uh, she watched him and drove into the back of a police car, which was in front of her. <laughs> That's lovely. Um, well, you come back, it's not too big a break then, but the colours come in. Ambassadors of Death are card-carrying... 10 out of 10 from me, one of my favourite stories of Doctor Who's entire run. I love it. Uh, it's got a cast to die for. John Abenary, William Dysart, Ronald Allen, Cyril Shapps. I mean, what are you spoiling us? Um, you've got a fussy scientist and you don't cast Cyril Shapps, you're doing something wrong. Um, great characters. Why William Dysart didn't play James Bond, I've no idea. I know, I know. He's brilliant. Yes, it? he's a very, very strong actor and a nice guy. Um, I Worked with two or three times. All of those people you've just named, I'm pretty certain I worked with at least twice, probably more times. Um, and there was a lot of very, very good actors around. There are a lot of very good actors around now. There's a lot more actors and a lot less work. It's yeah. not a happy industry, but those were the days when it was rich with talent. Um, well, and, but it's not particularly remembered for his, its acting because even though the acting is absolutely brilliant in it, it's also a hugely ambitious production. You've got big fights in warehouses, lots on film, uh, uh, 
Um, it's the sort of first flourishing of havoc, the stunt agency. So you do a, a hijack involving a helicopter and Derek Ware falling off it and motorcycles running into production assistants. Um, <laughs> you so, really do know your stuff, so the, the, the whole, impressed. The whole, I mean, you seem to really go to town on that and enjoy the, yeah, yeah. the, the very seamlessly done action in it. No, I did. I enjoyed doing action stuff because it was it was fun and again it was very different then on that program in particular and in general um, with because I got to know Derek very well um, so uh, Derek I'm going to do an action sequence at Aldershot um, could uh, we can afford six guys could you all come along and we'll see what we can do um, rather than having a stunt organiser or stunt director who would pre-rehearse a lot of stuff then, for better or for worse, and in some cases for worse, um, you say, look, okay, I need somebody to die over in that corner. There's some boxes there. Um, could you do that? What can you do? And they would, they would improvise. They would, the, the warehouse sequence, which people do refer to, was exactly like that. There were three or four of them, five of them possibly. Derek was certainly one of them, because I think he appears twice. Yes, yes, he does. <laughs> and... Nick playing the, the brigadier who's shooting off and um, he arrives at the back or up some steps or something, I can't remember now and all I did with, with him was to get everybody well out of the way and say, Nick, I want to just come in and shoot at random, wherever you, like, wherever you want to and he said, well how many shots have I got? And I said, well it's probably six but we can do it again if you want to um, but it doesn't matter where you point uh, but just give me a bit of space between each one. Don't fire them, fire them off too quickly. And but, but bring the gun up each time. Yeah, okay, well, so I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but I'll do it. And that's what he did. So it came on, we turned over. That's one gun. Did this. So we had lots and lots of shots of. Um, it's one of my favourite bits because he's there and he's shooting, and then suddenly somebody falls from the sky behind. So somebody falls off a gantry or something behind yeah. him. It's brilliant. Yes. <laughs> yes. It was fun. It was it was playground soldiers and enemies, uh, cowboys and Indians, but for real, much more for real, without anybody ever getting hurt, except occasionally they did, and Pauline uh, wasn't the only one. But it was acceptable to a point. And then health and safety was tightened up, and I think quite properly. And certainly when I went on to work on the bills and bill a lot, there was a lot of times when I was very, very glad that we had health and safety people breathing down our necks. Mm. And so things change, they evolve, they get better, sometimes they get worse, they always get more expensive. Well, there's a softy, softy where a man is killed, doesn't there? Keith Peacock. Yes, yeah. yes. yes. There was something else. Um, I'd been casualty, I think. Somebody was killed not long after I left it. I think it was casual. I've noticed a trademark way you have of, of ramping up the tension. It's one of my favourite cliffhangers. Is on paper, it's just the doctor saying, "Cut it, cut open this capsule," because they think somebody's in it. And, and the way that you do it is you do this really curious cross-cutting as the camera's panning in, mm. but it also judders back slightly, mm. so you have to... So what, how did you discover that? Because it seems to be a trademark of yours, and I think uh, it's brilliant. It's what I call um, four, five, six-point zoom. And I first did it in going back to the Triton, the thing I was talking about earlier. I think it was on that one. 
where I wanted for the opening credits um, a shot of something or somebody lying in the sand and holding something which is important or whatever, I can't remember the details, but I wanted a wide shot and then a slightly tighter one, then a slightly tighter one, then a slightly tighter one. And that's what we did. We, we, and each jump gave a new bit, uh, part of the opening credits, including the title. And this seemed to work. It, and in fact, Adley Sutton, who wrote the music for it, used the jumps. Yeah. And it just has an energy about it. And I suppose I did use it from time to time. You, um, it's, I don't think when I did it on Triton that the film crews carried zoom lenses with them. I'm not sure. Um, but certainly when zoom lenses became common, the part of the kit, in fact, became the only part of the kit eventually, um, fixed lenses disappeared. But what you're talking about is a slow zoom, which it just has bits cut out of it. Really effective at, at ramping up the tension. Yes, and, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and we're not going to go the, the one last jump, which will yeah. tell you what you're looking at or whatever. Yeah. And you've got, and because it's set in space, you've got some great model work, and you've also got this very elegant music from Dudley Simpson that's... that's uh, and there's a bit that sounds like Procol Harum's White a Shade of Pale. I mean, oh, really? it's a, yeah. Um, and Dudley did, Dudley did the music on uh, on the Seeds of Death as well, yeah. and, and on the Cause of Death. So, so, do, do, what was your relationship like with with the music? Uh, you know, was was music something that you were actively involved in, or was it something that you? Um, I would like to oversee it. I think most directors would, but Dudley was very inventive uh, and very good, and he he did. Um, both Pegasus, which is the other thing like Triton, the other Rex Tucker uh, children's piece that I did, and he did the music for both of those, I think. Um, and we worked together very well. We'd have a look at it, and I'd talk about what, uh, the way I kind of heard it, if you like. Um, but because we had to be very frugal with the use of music, very often I would say to Dudley, okay, well, if you could write me a kind of an album of music that I can use bits of in different circumstances, may you repeat the same bit, which is a more economical way than uh, him taking it away, which is what normally happens, and doing it and writing to the to the picture. But Dudley was very good at overviewing something and then writing music where you could take a section of it and apply it somewhere, and it would fit more or less. Sometimes I'd tweak the edit to make it fit a little bit more comfortably. It, 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 in those days, the things were so different from the way. But they are now. It was much more, I don't know, I don't want to say amateur because it wasn't amateur, we were all very professional. But it was more, more inventive, it was more trying to get as much as you can for as little money as possible and so on because there wasn't very much. Because there wasn't the after sales, there wasn't the after use of material. The BBC, in the early part of my career, had no. Didn't, had, didn't have the foresight to see that they were creating stuff which could be sold eventually for a hell of a lot of money. Mm. Well, and indeed, Ambassadors has only really recently uh, been restored to how it should look in colour, and that's, that's taken a long time, and getting stuff from disparate sources to, to sort of piece it together and, and, and uh, not make it you know, black and white or an off-air VHS. So, um, mm. you know, it's... Uh, um, and, oh, and of course, the experimentation... 
um, means that it's the only one that has, and I, it's a shame they never did it again, the, the way that the titles are heralded, you know, with the ambassadors of death and it screams <laughs> it. So you've got a cliffhanger at the beginning of the story, which yes. is a really dramatic way to open yes. it. Love yes. that. Yeah. It was great. I mean, I, I, was, I was just a guy from New Malden who had five O-levels. and the, I, I'm so lucky in my career being in the right place at the right time and working with the right people and being able to, to build from for better or for worse, a career, um, which I, in the end, gave up voluntarily. I didn't run out of work. I was able to say, now I'm not going to do any more. And I want to, I'm conscious of your time, but I, want to, I do want to talk about more than Doc 2, so let's get to um, the clause of Axos, if, you, if, you, if you're okay with Yeah, sure, I, mean, I can start, we'll start. Ah, plenty of time. Well, the, the famous thing about the clause of Axos, as I'm sure you've heard, is um, our four-day shoot at Dungeness. Mm. The story was about some aliens landing and taking over the power supply in this country, or at least that was the danger set up at the very beginning. And uh, we thought about how can we show this? Somebody said, well, let's go to a power station. So we went and wrecked Dungeness and talked to them and said, would you be interested? Would we be able to come and film outside and inside? and uh, it was wonderful. I thought, this is really great. The sea is right there, and um, there are sand dunes, and there are these wonderful swagged power lines that come out of the, the power station itself and swag from huge pylons and disappear into the country. I thought, this is really good. This is absolutely exciting, a good way of starting. And uh, this was all set up, and... So we went down to Dungeness and had a look at it, and I got really very excited. I thought, this will look absolutely splendid on film. And, uh, and we went down there, and the routine usually was that there would be one day's filming per episode. So you try and do all the stuff on one location, even however many episodes it was in at, at one shoot. You don't keep going backwards and forwards to the same place. And we had, I think... Four days at Dungeness the whole time we were there for four days. So this was in January or February. Uh, we travel down there, check into the hotels, get in the following morning to go and shoot. Thick fog, thick fog. All you can see is power lines emerging from the <laughs> the grey mist and disappearing away from. Them. What the hell are we going to do? Well, there's nothing we could do, so we just got on and did it and Derek Ware did his famous fall uh, cycle yeah. ride into the stream twice and um, I thought well I don't know nothing I can do I rang bass and let uh, I think it was Derek Sherwin by then yes, that Barry, Barry, Barry Letts was producing was it still Barry then yeah but, but Derek Sherwin was, um, was around on Seeds of Death and then Barry took over that's right for, yes it was the other way around for, yeah. yeah and uh, we did what we could and then the following day, which is supposed to be the same day in the story, it had uh, cleared and the sun had come out, but it had snowed. <laughs> and the following day, the sun had got rid of the snow, so it was the same as yesterday and there was no snow. And the day after that, it poured rain. <laughs> I may have got that in the wrong order, but that's certainly the th- yeah. th- what happened. So what do we do about it? And um, it must have been Terry. Terry Sticks, yeah. Yes. Um, I think who solved it 
I get the first major scene in the story is in some net, some control place where they've got information on the radar that these aliens are landing, and um, there's a line written in for actually I think she was an extra who was given the line. Uh, and she says they're talking about what are we going to do when if these aliens land, what is it, what's it all about and she said news from uh, Dungeness um, there's, uh, there's uh, extraordinary weather conditions in the area yeah, freak, freak weather conditions <laughs> freak weather, that's, that's, the yeah. line. I can't remember yeah. it yeah, that's actually, it's Corporal Bell who's Fernanda Marlow who that, you'd, uh, you'd uh, inherited from the previous stories oh, she'd that's been, right, yeah, yes she'd been cast by Tim Coombe in the previous yes, story sir. so yes. they they hoiked her in. Good. Well, I just haven't got a life. <laughs> um, uh, it's, um, it's, uh, poor old Peter Bathurst gets a lot of stick for his performance in The Claws of Axos, which I think is rather a shame, because he's, he's, he's in a long line of um, buffoonish ministers mm. in Doctor mm. Who, which mm. I think Doctor Who's always done rather well. I rather like Peter Bathurst. It was one of the last things he did. What's he get stick for? Uh, being a bit, I think being a bit OTT. Uh, well, that's one of the problems I have... Um, We'll come on if we've time. We'll come, I'll just talk a little bit about what I'm, what I do, I have been doing for a while. But my contention is that real life is a lot more OTT than the majority of performances that actors give because they're frightened of being OTT, and very often they pull back too far. People are much more active. They're much more busy. They're much more unpredictable. There was a UKIP MEP on any questions the other day who was far more over the yeah, top than yes, any yes, yes. <laughs> government minister John Pert we tangled with. <laughs> yeah, and Pertwee, of course, had got that thing as he came from a comedy background and yes. was doing a straight performance. Yes, and um, how did you get on with? with I, I like John very much. Um, again, my slight reservations that I applied to the majority of Doctor Who, subsequent Doctor Who's. I think I would apply to him, except I think that John had enormous authority and he persuaded me that he was a magician, that he could do things that, that were supernatural or uh, extraordinary um, and had a, a lot of energy. Uh, he was a great leading man. He was just superb. And the most fun we ever, I ever had on the, on the programme was with... John, and it became a habit that we rehearsed for a week and then, or for, for five or six days, or whatever it was, and then we're in the studio for one day. And we would rehearse all the scenes, and then we'd have run throughs in rehearsal. And I used to have speed run throughs where I would encourage them to go as fast as they could, lay out the space, and then say, Okay, ready, steady, go. And this is simply a way of helping actors to get the lines really, really fixed. Oh after a comparatively short rehearsal period. John was brilliant in this, as you can imagine. He was incredibly fast, incredibly on top of his lines already, um, and very, very funny, which was superb. And he always welcomed the guest actors in, and he was, it was terrific. Well, let's get off Doctor Who, because this is about so much more. And uh, I have one more Doctor Who question that I'm going to ask at the end. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, some of the other stuff, I mean, it's pretty, I read in Kenneth Branagh's autobiography, about, he talked about the best performance he'd ever seen on television, and it was in an episode of Culbins. Mm. And that always intrigued me. So when the BBC repeated it as part of a Mind Over Matters season, because mm. the subject matter is that uh, an English officer fakes insanity... Um, in order to be repatriated, um, 
and I won't say any more than that because I don't want to ruin any, it for anybody that hasn't seen it. But if you haven't seen it yet, watch it. And the, the, the actor is Michael Bryant. The guard who is sent to verify his claim is, uh, is Bernard Kay. And I was astonished by it when I saw it. And then I'm probably slightly less astonished because I should have known when at the end the director's credit was yours. And, uh, <laughs> I, just, it's, it's, I think it's an absolutely fantastic piece of television. So is it something that, that you were aware of at the time that had, had, was, was, was quite special? I was certainly aware that uh, Michael Bryant and Bernard gave superb performances. And there was a very strong set of actors in Colditz anyway, actually. Ted Hardwick and people like that. Jack Headley. Jack Headley, yes, who I worked several times with. Um, but I, I remember doing it very well um, because I was very moved by the story. And I talked to Pat Reed, who was the, the real-life SKP, the senior officer, um, who was involved with the programme a lot. We talked to him always. Yeah, he was he, a technical advisor, yeah, wasn't he? he? And he told me about the origin, the real story, the real life story, which was, was very moving. And I was just hoped that we found some of that in what we're doing. A lovely script by John Bresson. It was, yeah. Um, and Michael Bryant was the obvious choice for me. And I think... I can't remember what he was doing at the time. He did quite a lot of stage work as well. And, and ended up at the National and did some marvellous stuff there and then decided that he wasn't going to do any more anyway. Uh, but he agreed to do this, but he said he wanted to come in and talk about it first. So that's myself and probably Jerry Glaston, I think. Brian Dagar met him in a little side room at the BBC. And uh, he said he'd read it and liked it very much and was very keen to do it, but didn't want to talk to anybody about the psychology. And I thought, fair enough, okay, I trust you. And uh, we re rehearsed it, and he was already there. Um, and he was just a, a wonderful, intuitive actor. He didn't intellectualise about uh, what he was doing very much I don't think but he felt it very quickly very immediately and I remember we were doing some of the studio work at Television Centre where we had the barracks and the dormitory and all those wooden beds and things and there was a long scene where he's lying on the bed and I think somebody comes and talks to him and he goes away and he's been playing his gramophone and so on. Yeah. And we took it, and I could see, because the camera, cameras liked following, they weren't doing anything much there. I could see uh, Michael leapt off the bed, jumped off, and there was a makeup girl hard by, so he um, grabbed hold of her and <laughs> walked out with her. I think he goosed her first, I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, he, play, you know, he was playful. Um, and then, for some reason, we got feedback from VTR saying, sorry, you're going to have to do that again. So he was recalled back. No problem at all. Got back and did it exactly the same. And I wouldn't even say did it better, because I don't think he could have done it better. He did it slightly differently, but just as good. Yeah, that's. A, I mean, that's a that's a piece of television to be proud of. Was there anything anything else that you directed that, uh, you know, because you're one of those poor people that's had such a long and 
illustrious career, and most of the time, I suspect people want to talk to you about Doctor Who. So, 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 what, what about when we've moved into colour? Some of the stuff that you did for television as director before we get on to producing. Well, one of the things that I do remember enjoying enormously was something called Perils of Pendragon with Ken Griffiths and John Clive, which started as a one-off, uh, and which. Uh, Yes, and then later we did, I think it was six episodes. It was a precursor of the thing that uh, uh, Ronnie Barker did. In fact, they were doing it at the same time. But the basis is that it's, uh, <coughs> in this case, a corner shop in Wales, and it's the proprietor and his assistant. And much the same thing seemed to be happening further down the corridor. But ah. it didn't put us off. And I... Ken Griffiths I enjoyed as a person so much. He was a mad Welshman, a fanatic, a, a political animal, and a wonderful actor, and a, just just great. And I've read his autobiography. He, oh, really? Uh, yeah, yes. he's, uh, he leaps off the page. Yes, I mean, yes. zeal. and yes. uh, He did a lot of documentaries in South Africa, yeah. and I think was instrumental in changing South Africa. Uh, yeah, but at a time when it was, um, you know, not a thing to do as well. But he seems to, he struck me as, he comes across as somebody if he decided he wanted to do something, he did it. Yes, you, you could be sitting chatting as we are now just about things and about the show and everything else. And the merest trigger, he would suddenly go off into a, a, an explanation about what is wrong, what is right, what should be done about it, and bang the table, and then just suddenly switch it off and carry on <laughs> as though nothing had happened. But he had that great extra quality as an actor as well. Oh, He's yes, a, yes, that yes. indefinable very, something. Very alive and very present and, yeah, smashing. <laughs> but he could, could be quite unmanageable sometimes. I remember we were in Wales, up in the mountain hills somewhere where there was a corner shop. And he was supposed to come out and do something like that. And uh, so we had lights all around it, and because it was the early days of outside broadcast, we had those big heavy cameras which typically been in the studios. They just take them up, made them weatherproof, and put them outside to start with. And Ken did a scene where he was supposed to come out, and, and he was talking to the other character and walking about. And I said, "Okay, well you're safe to walk here." Um, Ken, you can come across here if you like. You, I, I don't mind. You can go. We can follow you wherever you go. So <laughs> we started turnover and all of that, and Ken starts, and then before it was very long, he's walked well away from the area I'd given him, walking behind the lights, and the cameras were trying to get out of the way, and he, he didn't care. He completely <laughs> was so taken, involved with what he was talking about, um, that he just made it impossible. <laughs> I said, no, look, Ken, no, look, Ken. <laughs> let's, go, let's go through this again. <laughs> he was sweet. I, think I, think, I sometimes think he was doing it deliberately. Well, I mean, you work with so many actors. Who, who, who would you say were, were the actors that you, you particularly enjoyed working with, either from a personality point of view or because of the quality of their work? Well, an actor I worked with a lot, Troy Marson, who I got to, knew extremely well. I uh, worked with him first on Dickens of London, I think. We played a comparatively small part. Then we did The Sandbaggers. It's a great series. Yeah. Um, and then uh, subsequently on Air, Airline. That, meant, that brings us to the, the Sandbaggers, which was... Those, 
listeners who haven't seen it who I would urge to. I always say it's like spooks, but in the office. Mm. Because they, what, what I think it makes it great about it is you do see the field operatives, but it's mostly mm. what's going on in Whitehall while the dangerous stuff's going out mm. around the world. And so it's, it's about political machinations and compromise and character. Mm. And it's a, it's a great series that, mm. and very authentic as well because of mm. the background of the writers. So is that a series you, you, you have fond memories of? I do, yes. And of Ian McIntosh, mm. Started it, wrote it, produced it, or sent produced it because I took over, um, and it was a great loss. I, he wasn't best liked by a lot of people, but he always had good reason, and mostly I agreed with him. And I think the series he wrote that he devised was very powerful in many ways, and it's, it's, I enjoyed doing that. I wish it had had more money because almost you know, everything that was supposed to be in Berlin or somewhere in the other side of the Iron Curtain um, was shot in Harrogate. <laughs> was it ever thus? <laughs> <laughs> no, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed Airline as well. That was a totally different thing. That was um, again, it was fun to do. We did get out of the country on it. We went to Malta and spent a lot of time out there. Finding Dakotas and playing about, <laughs> playing with planes. But what about? Um, uh, uh, it's a famously um, series that uh, nobody really talks about, and you only did one episode of it. But Churchill's People oh, yes. has gone down rather infamously as mm. uh, as a series that uh, was a was a was a bit of a failure. So can you can you? I mean, did was that the feeling at the time or? I think it it was a bit like the early days of Doctor Who. Actually, it it felt you felt while you were doing it there was not enough money being spent on this. The scripts were okay, I think, and the casting was on the whole pretty good. But the studio set that I was given to do the whole ninety minutes or whatever it was, it was very difficult to work on because there wasn't very much of it. Too ambitious for a TV studio. I then. think so. Yes, yes. Um, it's. I quite enjoyed doing it. It was split by some sort of strike or something. There was some stand down of some sort. I can't remember what that was. Well, they were... I know that I had to recast. Oh, really? Uh, I can't remember who. But one of the characters I had to recast because by the time we came back, uh, he or she wasn't available. Wasn't available. Well, I can't remember the details of that. I'm sorry, Toby. No, that's that. all right. Uh, but it, it leads us nicely because obviously. Um, uh, it leads us into the whole element of production, and, and obviously a producer um, has a slightly more uh, you have a slightly more political job, I guess, and administrative job than being a director. So you moved from directing to producing. Was that was that a a natural process? Um, was that one that you had any trepidation about? Because obviously, directing is very creative. Producing. Mm by necessity less so. Mm. Well, I didn't stop directing, in, in fact. So, and that part remained. Um, I was asked by David Cunliffe and Ian McIntosh to take over uh, at the beginning of The Sandbaggers, which had started, but there were problems, and they asked me if I would go and do it. And I was not expecting it. Um, in fact, I... The, I think it's almost over a cup of coffee that I, I thought, do I have something I want to do or not? And then I thought, well, yes, why shouldn't I? Um, so I did, so I agreed, said, okay. 
again I was helped by Ian who was a natural producer he'd already produced Warship I think uh, and something else he did um, another programme which he wrote and produced uh, and he was very helpful and we worked together and I'd, I'd learned on the job and that, again I was very very lucky and deeply saddened that um, Ian lost his life somewhere but nobody still nobody knows, quite knows, still yeah. knows. It was very, very strange, and it was bad. But you ended up producing, you know, programmes that are uh, with the, with the lifeblood of, 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 of the, the televisual firmament on both, on both sides of the divide, because well, you did EastEnders and you did uh, and The Bill, which were two, two shows that, you know, were the most watched uh, things on, on television. So... Is there a, must have been enormous pressure handling two such valuable commodities, and was there a difference? I'm sure there was between doing it at the BBC and doing it at ITV. Well, I also did Casualty mm. for the BBC. Uh, well, I think the difference for me probably was that the BBC is and was uh, quite a large organisation, and. Um, it was departmentalised and you needed to know your way around much more around the BBC than you did as a director and the director you just needed the, the family of the, your producer and your script editor and your production team and that was it, really. that's all you needed um, but at, uh, when I worked for Yorkshire Television and for Thames it's much more like that rather than feeling you're part of a big organisation. And that's YTV particularly. I knew David Cunliffe, who was the head of drama, extremely well. David and I were quite close friends. Um, I knew Paul Fox, who was the managing director, who I don't, from the BBC, actually. There was a different feeling. It was, it was more village feel to YTV, any YTV company that I worked with, whereas... In the BBC, you feel you're part of a huge town, of which you're a, a parish. Mm. What interests me, and I've, I've a slightly vested interest in this because my other half is in a soap opera, um, but um, as a director, you hire people, you mm. give people work, you give work to people that you like. As a producer, by necessity, sometimes you have, you know, you have a reshuffle and you go, okay, well, we need to get rid of these people. Mm. How does somebody that likes actors and is used to giving them work and only doing that, suddenly becomes somebody who has to be quite ruthless and go, well, you've been in it for ten years, but mm. actually we, we can't do anything else with you. Off mm. you go. Yeah. Well, yes, it is difficult, and that's happened to me several times. You just have to be as understanding as you can, um, not to... and to make sure that the person you're talking about is the first to know, other than those who have made the decision with you, um, and not to come broadcast it or Anything, and give them time. Um, we'd always talk to the agents as well, so the agent probably knew before the actor did. But I would always say I will speak to him or her. Yeah. But act, you, it's very seldom it's done within a contract. It's usually done by the end of the contract. Sure. So usually, instead of saying, I'm afraid we're not going to need you after next Tuesday, but we say, I'm afraid we're not going to be able to renew your contract. 
which yeah. is very different. Yes, slightly better than off, yes. yeah, than off you yeah. go. Yes. So that's the way I would always try to do it. So what are the challenges of doing a, a, a show like... Because obviously the day-to-day running of, of, of something like EastEnders, we're largely dealing with the same people in the same mm. sets and all that sort of thing. Mm. Casualty has standing sets and standing people, but by the nature of the show, you have to have a big accident or disaster or yeah, something yeah, gory yeah. every week. So what were the challenges of doing Casualty? Um, well, getting good scripts was one of them. We had very good writers on it, but it, <coughs> good scripts is always... The first thing, if a show fails, I tend to look at this, whether it's the script that's at fault or whether it's the actors or the director. Um, Casualty was well served, certainly when I was there with good writers, um, good actors on the whole, I think. Yeah. So you've alluded to the fact that you sort of stopped and you, we've, we've mentioned a couple of times what, what you do now so talk, talk us through that process of why you sort of wound up the television and what it is you've been because you haven't been lazy what it, what it is you've been <laughs> doing with your time well I stopped producing and directing because I'd run out of steam um, I was nearly 70 and it's, it's tiring and it's always pushing boundaries, it's hard work, it's stressful. And I suddenly begin to think, I'm not enjoying this anymore, I'm not giving to it in the way that I used to, I'm putting up with it. I know what all the problems are, I know what the solutions are to those problems that have got solutions, and I know how to deal with those that don't. Um, it's been going on for 40 years, and I think that I want to do something else. And what I want to do is to, to work with actors still, and to write, and I've been able to do both of those things. I work with actors at the Actors Centre, which is in London, and I go, in fact, I was there the night before last, uh, doing workshops, working with people. But mostly my interest is in helping actors to work on the screen, and I have an approach to not training actors. I don't don't like the idea of teaching or training, but I do like the idea of facilitating um, ways that actors can overcome what I call their burdens, which most famously, of course, always is learning lines and retaining the lines. But there are other things, like um, having what you might call screen fright or camera fright. Um, But more subtle things, like having knowledge of the future. The character at any point in a story knows, the actor knows how it's going to turn out. Uh, and that can be a hindrance. There's also uh, knowledge of the past, which is typically, oh, I did it so well on take two, why are we doing take nine? <laughs> and that, that's, that memory hinders mm. um, the performance in, on take nine. So, uh, about five years ago now, I ran some weekend Sunday uh, workshops at the Actors Centre where in the morning I had drama students and in the afternoon I had established actors from, drawn from the membership of the Actors Centre itself who are all professional actors there's three and a half thousand of them but they're all professional actors um, and I did various things with them experimenting with what I had already been doing at, when I was teaching at Arts Educational and at one or two other places um, and I, I've, 
the end of the four weeks of these Sundays, and I'd made what I felt were quite a lot of advances, and so happily to the actors, and they said, we want to go on doing this, um, this kind of work. And I said, well, there's nothing I can do to help you in this. We can't meet every day, that would be nice. Uh, nor can, because I was given the time by the Actors' Centre, I didn't have to pay for it. But they said, well, we want to meet, I said, well, to form a group. And uh, you can meet regularly and I'll come and work with you when I can. You want to go to the management and see what they've got to say about it. I went then to the management behind their back um, with... Uh, the artistic director and with Peter Krajin, who was a friend of mine who was then the, on the board of directors or whatever it is and uh, they formed a group called the Actors Screen Collective I carried on with my, my work um, and I gave it a title which is Headstrong, it's the Headstrong approach to acting that because it seemed to me, several seem, things seemed to me, th important things, that a, a lot of acting and the conversation is very woolly. You know, I would say to you, darling, it's, uh, it, you know that bit where you, um, you, you, you come in and it, you, could it be a little bit more, you know? And you as the actor might typically say, ah, oh, yes, I know exactly where you've been. Yes, thank you, wonderful note, wonderful note. <laughs> There's a lot of fluffiness. Um, and... Uh, it seems to me that a lot of acting is based on things which are difficult to describe and which are very abstract in any case. And I, I want to, to encourage actors to use their head more. As somebody that's worked in the industry for, for so long in, in, in various different spheres, what do you make of what you watch now? What's on the telly now? I think I'm disappointed more than I'm excited. Uh, what is your charity that you would like the listeners to donate to, Michael? Well, I would like um, any money that might accrue from this wonderful meeting that I've enjoyed enormously um, to Shooting Stars, which is a charity for children. Um, it's a hospice. Uh, I did a lot of work for Helen House Hospice at one time when I was running a, um, a production company. We did lots of work with Helen House, so I'm very familiar with Jilton Hospices. Shooting Stars is an important one and I'd like any money to go to them. I will do, Link. And uh, I started this podcast to celebrate 50 years of Doctor Who. What is your message to the Doctor Who fans listening? Keep watching. And I said I had one more question about Doctor Who and it's one that's tested my brain for many, many years. Why is Wotan pronounced Votan? German. <laughs> okay. Michael Ferguson, thank you very much. Okay. That was great. Thank you. My thanks to Michael, an enthusiastic contributor, generous with his time, so please be generous to his charity which uh, has undergone a name change since Michael and I spoke. It is now called Shooting Star Chase, uh, and it is a charity for teenage children with uh, life-limiting, life-shortening illnesses, a very important cause. Uh, Shooting Star Chase is all one word. Shooting Star Chase, all small case, .org.uk. Shootingstarchase.org.uk. Any donations would, of course, be more than welcome. There's another... Who's Round uh, 
pretty much at the same time next week. Thanks for listening to this one, and take care. Are we all here? Ian? Barbara? Vicky? Jasper! Where's Jasper? He was right behind me. Jasper! Oh, thank goodness. What are you waiting for? We need to be out of here. Let's get in the TARDIS and go. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Early Adventures. The Fifth Traveller. You mean there are people out there? Of a sort. Intelligent anthropoids. Apes of some variation. Something has arrived. From where? Vast. So very huge. Empty and dark. What's wrong? You look terrified. Barbara, we have to get back to the TARDIS. Now! <gasps> Joshua, look out! So much. Pain like I have never felt. From the dawn of the trees to the end of time. We're further from the TARDIS now, and on the wrong side of the river. We could take a leaf out of their book, swing over on the vines. What do you take me for, young man? A letter day Tarzan? Big finish. We love stories. <laughs> <laughs>